listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This reading is from Matthew 15, verses 16 to 33. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide which each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Kurt, for that reading. Is my clock right? It's 20 till already? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Um, Before we get started, um, I want to thank James Wisey for filling the pulpit last Sunday. Uh, If you were here, let's let's hear it for James. Uh, James did uh, a wonderful job. Um, I was in Kansas City attending the Space for Grace conference. Um, That is a conference that our denomination puts on every other year for pastors and other ministry leaders. Had an awesome time there. Got to hear uh, some incredible preaching. Uh, There's some wonderful uh, worship and workshops, and I got to interact with American Baptist leaders, folks in our, in our broader ABC family from around the country and around the world who are just doing absolutely amazing work. Um, I met ABC pastors from Puerto Rico who left the island just a day before Hurricane Fiona hit, um, got to pray with them, uh, got to hear their stories firsthand. Um, that was a powerful experience. Uh, I met some ABC missionaries who are operating the first liberal arts university in Northeast India, which is one of the poorest areas on the entire planet. Um, I met a pastor from West Virginia working on climate justice. I met um, 
pastors in New Jersey who have a ministry with homeless LGBTQ youth. Um, I met a pastor from Massachusetts whose uh, congregation was on the ground uh, a few weeks ago when um, those 50-some-odd uh, immigrants were just dumped in Martha's Vineyard. I met a pastor who was actually there uh, helping to meet their needs. It was an incredibly powerful experience. Um, I also had some fantastic barbecue because it's Kansas City. Um, <laughs> But it was a really good trip, and I want to thank you all so much um, for giving me uh, education leave to attend these conferences, have experiences like this, um, and an education budget that actually makes this possible. Um, I was greatly blessed by the trip, and I hope to be sharing uh, those blessings with you all in the days ahead. We're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus today, but we're going to get at it in kind of a unique way. Uh, I'm banking on this one uh, being a familiar story for most of us. Um, I see enough crosses on folks' necks that I'm, I'm guessing you know this one. Um, but this is, this is one where once I connected the dots on some of this stuff I want to share with you today, uh, it made me see the crucifixion of Jesus in an entirely different way. We're talking about crucifixion today by way of coronation. Now, coronation is a big word. Uh, coronation, of course, is when a new monarch receives their crown, when a new king or queen uh, is crowned. With the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth just a few weeks ago, we're going to have a coronation pretty soon, right? Uh, king Charles III, there he is, looking kind of antsy, um, <laughs> or looking kind of something. Notice he's not wearing the crown yet. It's because he hasn't been coronated. I did some research on this. They're actually holding off on coronating him. They're trying to time it right around the anniversary of his mom's uh, coronation uh, 70 years ago. Now, I know uh, we've got some Anglophiles in here, right? We've got some folks who are like big fans of the British monarchy. Um, let's hear it for the Anglophiles. Woo. Anybody? <laughs> A few of us. Uh, personally, I, I have never understood the fascination with monarchs uh, in the United States. I just, I, I don't get it personally. Um, in, in our house, in the Brockway house, we're more of a Francophile family. Like Aaron and I, we really like, you know, French stuff, French culture, French food, French wine. And we know what the French did to their monarchs, right? It was not, not good. <laughs> it's more like a, right? Anyway, um, but yeah, so when King Charles gets coronated, in a few months, that's going to be the first coronation a lot of us have seen. Um, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne for 70 years. That's a long time. Even if you were here to see that one, you might have a hard time remembering it. It's been a while since any of us have seen a coronation, which means that coronations probably aren't a very familiar concept for most of us, but that actually makes us unique in the grand scheme of things. Most people, historically speaking, knew what it was to live under a king or a queen. And Mark's original audience would have been very familiar with the concept of coronation. Uh, we've talked about the, the context of the Gospel of Mark in here a bit, uh, when it was written, who it was written to, that sort of thing. Just to refresh on the context of Mark's Gospel, um, scholars usually date this book. If we can go ahead one slide, perfect. Scholars usually date this book to the late 60s of the first century, somewhere in the range of like 66, 70-ish. It's ballpark. And it was written in Rome, 
which means at that time, the king people would have been familiar with was a guy named Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome. How many of us, by show of hands, have heard of Nero? Yeah, not a great guy, right? Um, Nero's infamous, right? He was, he was bloodthirsty. Um, he would torture Christians and Jews. Um, there is a legend that, and, and it might be apocryphal, but of Nero playing the fiddle as the city around him burned to the ground. Nero was not a good guy, but he was the king. Nero was coronated in the year 66 AD, which means that the coronation of Nero, right, would have been very fresh on the minds of Mark's original audience. And we know a lot about ancient Roman coronation ceremonies because the Romans kept detailed records outlining all the steps. There were nine steps in a Roman coronation ceremony, and I want to break those down real quick and see if we notice anything, see if we start connecting any dots. You guys ready for this? You, can, you look so excited. Uh, <laughs> there won't be a test. You don't have to take notes. But first step in a Roman coronation, <clears throat> the Praetorian Guard would gather to hail Caesar as Lord. The Praetorian Guard was this elite squad of Roman soldiers. It was like the top fighters in the Roman army. They acted as personal bodyguards to the emperor. Think like uh, the Secret Service, but with much stranger clothing, right? That's, that's the Praetorian Guard. And the Praetorian Guard would gather together. They'd assemble the whole unit around Caesar, and they would start hailing him as Lord and God. They'd go, Hail Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Hail Caesar, Son of God, over and over again. Almost like a pep rally. That's step one. As a second step, the Praetorian Guard would bring out royal robes and place them on Caesar, usually purple or scarlet robes, bright, expensive robes. Uh, Caesar would also receive a crown on his head, but it wasn't the official crown. It was one of those wreath crowns, you know, those leafy crowns that you see on like some Greek and Roman statues. He'd get one of those, and they'd hand him a scepter, basically a, a big stick. Step three, <clears throat> the Praetorian Guard would lead Caesar on a processional through the city, basically a parade through Rome. And you would have masses of people coming out to the streets to see the spectacle, Caesar in his robe and his crown, surrounded by all these soldiers who are chanting and hailing Caesar as God. Step four, Caesar was followed in the parade by a sacrificial animal, usually a bull, and Caesar himself would carry the means of execution, whatever weapon they were going to use to sacrifice the bull, usually a, either a big spear or a sword. So use your imaginations for a second to picture this. Caesar's marching through the city, leafy crown, robe, got a big stick and a sword. There's soldiers all around him, and they're pulling this bull, this powerful animal that is heading to its death. Step five, um, this parade would arrive at Capitoline Hill. Capitoline Hill um, was this uh, sacred spot in Rome. It was one of the highest places in the city. Uh, had a huge temple at the top of it. 
Capital lean, by the way, means head, so it's literally head hill. The legend is that this hill was formed out of the head of some like divine being, some angel or God's head had like made this hill. And if you think that sounds like absolutely ridiculous, right? Like, like who would believe that? A, a head made out of a God? Who, come on. This is, this is where we get Capitol Hill from, <laughs> as, as in the, the hill that the U.S. Capitol is. We, we're all Roman, basically. Um, <clears throat> so the parade comes to Capitoline Hill, Head Hill, and Caesar would be offered wine mixed with myrrh, very expensive wine, but he would refuse to drink it. Usually he would take it, Nero took it, and he dumped it out on the ground, showing that he is sober and of clear mind, okay? That's step five. Step six, the bull is killed. Caesar would sacrifice the bull right there in front of everyone, Um, and as if that's not brutal enough, after he kills the bull, the soldiers would march out a bunch of prisoners, usually political prisoners, and Caesar would declare death or life to each of the prisoners at at random. You live, you die. You live, you die. You live, you die. To show that Caesar and Caesar alone has power over life and death. Step seven, Caesar takes his place at the top of Capitoline Hill with the high priest of Zeus on his right and the commander of the Roman armies on his left, basically showing that both the religious establishment and the military establishment had his back. Step eight, everyone gathered begins to hail Caesar as Lord and God. Um, Basically, the whole crowd would start shouting, chanting, singing worship songs. It was essentially a worship service dedicated to Caesar. And all that singing and celebration would continue until the final step, step nine, the crowd would watch for a sign in the heavens. That's step nine. They would wait to see if the gods accepted Caesar. They'd look for something like an eclipse or a shooting star. Now, the Roman court had a bunch of astrologers who worked for them. So they would, like, check the star charts beforehand and plan these things. They would schedule the coronation ceremonies to coincide with some sort of a shooting star or something like that. For for Nero, it was an eclipse. So the people would party. They'd sing praise songs, Hail, Lord Caesar, Son of God, until there was some sign from the heavens. That's a Roman coronation. Sounds like quite a party, right? What's that? If you're not a bull. <laughs> yes, yeah. Now, some of you have probably already connected some of the dots on this, but what if I told you that Mark tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus as if it's a Roman coronation ceremony? We've already seen in the Gospel of Mark, he hijacks a number of imperial ideas, right? Like he's always borrowing these things, subverting them, and applying them to Jesus. Jesus is called Lord. Jesus is called Son of God. We think of that as like a religious title, but it, it wasn't. Those were political titles. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Son of God. Mark applies them to Jesus. Mark calls his account of the life of Jesus the gospel. Does anyone remember? This is going like way, way back to when we first started this series. Does anyone remember what the word gospel actually means? Good news is a literal translation. That's correct. 
But gospel, good news, was a type of writing that existed at the time. It was Roman writing in praise of the emperor. The Romans would put out a gospel to celebrate if Caesar was victorious in battle or if Caesar had died and taken his place among the gods, if Caesar was coronated, they would put out a gospel proclamation. Mark calls his story of Jesus the gospel. And he presents the crucifixion of Jesus as a coronation. I want to invite you all to grab a Bible, um, because this isn't going to be, we're not going to put it on the screens. I want to keep these nine steps up there. So grab a Bible, or pull it up on your phone, open up to... um, Mark 15, I think it's page 829 in your pew Bibles. We're going to keep the nine steps of a Roman coronation ceremony on the screen so we can refer back to them. But I want to read this passage together and see how it lines up. We're in Mark 15, beginning in verse 16. Um, As you open your Bibles, someone tell me, and and you can cheat, you can read it off here if you want. Uh, What's the first step in a Roman coronation ceremony? The guards gather, right? The Praetorian Guard, all the soldiers come out, and they start hailing Caesar as Lord. Let's start reading Mark 15 together, beginning in verse 16. I'll read it out loud. Then the soldiers led Jesus into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort. So the entire cohort of soldiers is assembled around Jesus. They come out in the court of the governor. What was step two? The robes and the crown, yep. Verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him. Hail, king of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed. There's your scepter, right? Spat upon him and knelt down in homage to him. Mark is being deeply subversive here. The soldiers are mocking Jesus. They're ridiculing him. But if you read between the lines just a little bit, they're also hailing him as king as they do it. Step three was the processional, right? Marching Caesar through the city. Uh, Verse 20, after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Anyone who's watched a Jesus movie has seen this scene. There's your parade. Step four, we talked about how Caesar would normally be followed by a sacrificial animal, uh, and Caesar himself would carry the instrument of crucifixion. The gospel writers actually disagree uh, on this one. In some of the gospels, it's stated very plainly that Jesus carries his cross, so they put Jesus in the position of, of Caesar or Nero carrying the means of his own crucifixion. In Mark, though, Mark puts Jesus in the place of the bull. Uh, verse 21, They compelled a a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. I just imagine the first time this was read publicly to the church in Rome, Alexander and Rufus, whoever they are, like, that's our dad. You know, that, that had to be wild. But the Romans grab some random guy from the crowd. They make him carry Jesus' cross as Jesus follows behind like the bull. Step five was when they got to Capitoline Hill, right? Head Hill. And Caesar's given the wine to drink with myrrh. Uh, Verse 22. 
Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Come on. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I feel like I should point out at this point, we're just reading the Bible, right? Like we have not skipped any verses. We're just going straight through. Step six is when the bull was killed, right? And then Caesar would uh, declare life or death to all these prisoners. Uh, Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide which each should take. This is a looser connection. Um, You've got the crucifixion, which lines up nicely with the bull being killed and the execution of prisoners. But, but the, the, the connection's not that strong. And this is where future gospel writers come in here and like make the connection even stronger. So like in the gospel of Luke, we get this same scene with the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothes. But Luke adds a detail that Mark doesn't have. Go to the next slide real quick so we can see this. This is Luke 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they cast lots to divide his clothing. So we've got Jesus on the cross issuing forgiveness to the very people who are crucifying him and gambling over his clothes. It's revealing that even at this moment from the cross, Jesus and Jesus alone has the power over life and death. Amen. Step seven was when uh, Caesar would take his place at the top of the hill with the high priest and the military commander on each side. Um, Verse 27, with him they crucified two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. Step eight, the crowd would sing Caesar's praises. Verse 29, Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. So you've got the crowds, the soldiers, and the religious establishment all mocking Jesus, but also all declaring him as king. They even hang that sign over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Finally, step nine, the sign in the heavens. Waiting for an eclipse or a shooting star, verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Just like Nero, Jesus gets his eclipse. Why would Mark go to all this trouble to present the crucifixion of Jesus as a coronation? Like, what's the point? Why why all the parallels? Why use Nero's coronation as the script for Jesus' crucifixion? I think there's a couple angles we can get at this from. On the one hand, I think Mark's trying to stick it to the Romans a bit, right? Um, He's being subversive. 
We might say Mark was a bit of a, bit of a Francophile, if we can, of his day. Um, he's undermining imperial power, showing that even at their worst, even at their most brutal and violent, the power of Rome pales in comparison to Jesus. Jesus takes this defeat and turns it into a victory. That had to be good news for Mark's original audience. That had to be good news for Christians in Rome who were facing persecution under Nero, facing incredible pressure to conform. As Christians, we believe some impossible things. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) Um, We believe that a virgin gave birth to the Savior of the universe. We believe that God is both three and one. We believe that Jesus is fully human and yet fully God. We believe that God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, despite all the evidence to the contrary. And we also believe that Jesus, this poor, homeless son of a carpenter who died on a Roman execution stake, we believe that he is the savior of the universe. Jesus turns crucifixion into coronation. That would have been incredibly good news for Mark's original audience. But I imagine it also would have been challenging news. By presenting the crucifixion as a coronation, Mark is shaking these people to the core. He is presenting the good news of Jesus in a way that would have challenged everything they knew and believed. The coronation of Nero would have been so fresh on their minds. All that pomp and circumstance, the national pride, the the spectacle of it all for an absolutely bloodthirsty tyrant of a leader. By portraying Jesus' death as a coronation, Mark is telling these people, don't be fooled by all the glitz and the glamour of Rome. That's not a king. Nero is not your king. This is what a real king looks like. Hail King Jesus. You want to see power? Like real power? Don't look at Rome with all their military achievements, exploits, dominance. This is what real power looks like. The Son of Man who lays down his life for his enemies. You want to talk about victory. You want to talk about winning. You want to talk about what it looks like to be the best, to have success. This is what true victory looks like. Jesus prevails over death on the cross. I hope that shakes us up just as much as it shook them up. When we look at our culture, what we value, what we worship, the leaders we follow, I hope we remember that this is what a king looks like. When we see violence in our world, when we see military conflict, countries invading other countries, when we see defense budgets ballooning, more and more weapons, when we are tempted to embrace violence ourselves, I hope we remember that this is what real power looks like. And when we think about success, our careers, our families, 
what we value, what we prioritize, I hope we remember that this is what true victory looks like. This is our ideal. This is what we're called to embody. Hail Lord Jesus, Son of the living God. Let's pray. God, we praise you. For you are a God who turns defeat into victory. Lord, we ask that you'd help us live into that victory. Help us to follow Christ as our King. May his victory on the cross challenge everything we know and believe. May it shake us to the core. May it shake up our values and our allegiances as we strive to follow his example. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.